I have to say that I'm just feeling so overwhelmed by God this morning in, in a very good way. Um, I guess the best way to express it would be from Psalm 62 where the psalmist says, my, my soul has been satisfied as with the richest of food and with singing lips my mouth will praise you. I'm not going to... I'm not going to engage in any singing lips today, but I'm just feeling overwhelmed by God. And part of the reason for that is that I've been going on a journey for a a long time, in fact decades, of trying to really understand the love of God, to really grasp the extent to which God loves us. And it's very important for us in our lives to understand the journey that God is taking us on to understand, in a sense, the story that he's telling us. So I would encourage you to spend time, whenever something churns you up a lot, whenever you get very discouraged or angry or disappointed by something, to try and understand what God is doing in your life. What is the journey that he's taken you on? And I'd like to share a little bit of the journey that he's taken me on over the last 20 or 30 years, um, and leading me into that place where I can say with far greater conviction than I could even three weeks ago, Jesus loves me, this I know. He loves me. And what we need to do as we come to God's word and as we seek to understand his love in a deeper way, we actually need to pray for ourselves. Paul gives us an insight into the way that he prays for Christians in Ephesians. And I'm going to read this because... I want this to be our prayer this morning. He says, I pray that you being rooted and established in love. We're rooted and established in love because of what Christ did for us on the cross. May have power together with all the Lord's people to grasp. We need to understand this morning, folks, that we actually need God's power in order to be able to grasp how much he loves us. We can't just sit here in the pews and say, right now I'm going to understand God's love without his help. We need power to grasp. He says, I pray that you may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And that's what we're praying for this morning. We're praying that God would give us the power to grasp how much he loves us. We're asking that he would enable us to understand and to know something that actually is beyond knowing. And that's a miracle. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is work within us. We often apply that to other things, but in the context here, the... The greatest miracle that we could ever have is to understand the love of God. And the reason why we need to understand the love of God is so that we can be filled filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. It's possible, folks. And it's the journey that we're on. It's the journey that I've been on over the years. And as I say, I'm just feeling satisfied as with the richest of foods. I know that I'll go on to hunger more because that's the way it is. We'll only be fully satisfied when we get to heaven, but it's a wonderful thing. So let's read from Psalm 22. I printed it here in 
big print, so I don't need my glasses. It's quite a long song, but let's just dive into it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. God is sovereign. You are the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and they were saved. In you they trusted and they were not put to shame. But I'm a worm and not a man. Scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. And yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has been turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive, posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, unborn, he has done it. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, ten years ago, Gail and I went on an amazing holiday to Israel, a trip to Israel that was paid for by a very generous couple who comes here to harvest. And amongst the many visits on our itinerary was one that took us to the Yad Vashem Museum. Now we all knew in the tour that the museum was devoted to remembering the Holocaust, but most of us were just unprepared for what we were going to see there. And in fact, I don't think anyone can be adequately prepared for evidence of the Holocaust. 
One of the exhibitions displayed artifacts from that time in history along with the story behind each object. And that little shoe there belonged to a two-year-old girl from Lithuania called Hinda Cohen. Her parents were a young couple called Zipporah and Dov. And with the German invasion of Lithuania, they unsuccessfully tried to flee to the Soviet Union. Um, when it didn't succeed, they returned home to Kovno, and where they were later interned in a ghetto, the Kovno ghetto. And approximately half a year later, in January 18, 1942, Tsipora gave birth to a daughter whom she named after her mother, the little Hinda. Uh, at the end of November 1943, the couple was transferred to the Alexotas work camp. Uh, the inmates were expected to work building an airport and they lived in very difficult conditions, performing backbreaking forced labor. During the day, the men and women would go off to work and only the children would remain in the camp with the small cluster of adults and the elderly who couldn't work. And then on March the 27th, 27th in 1943, trucks arrived in the camp and the adults were taken out of a different gate so, than the usual one so that they wouldn't see the trucks and disrupt what was about to happen. All the children were about to be deported to a death camp. When the adults returned at the end of the day, they discovered the extent of the tragedy. Not a single child remained in the camp. Dov and Sipora went to their daughter's bed where they found one of her shoes and the gloves that Sipora had sewn for her out of scraps of wool. And Dov inscribed the date upon the shoe and he swore to save it forever. You can see it on the slide. They later returned to the, the ghetto and then they fled into the forest where they were liberated by the Russian army. And in 1947, Sipora gave birth to another daughter. In 1960, they immigrated to Israel. That's just a glimpse of what we saw at the Yad Vashem uh, Museum. And I was just uh, utterly devastated. I was deeply disturbed by the visit. And in spite of the fact that we were on the holiday of a lifetime, I just felt depressed and churned up literally for, for days. And I wasn't the only one. It affected my dreams even. Uh, in fact, one of the guys on the trip got quite angry with the tour guide for having taken us there. And you can understand that reaction. And in many ways, I, I suppressed what I saw at the museum because I just I couldn't deal with it. But from time to time, I get reminded that there is horrific suffering and tragedy in the world. And more often than not, the figures are just absolutely staggering. For example, this year marks the centenary of the 1918 um, influenza outbreak. It was an outbreak of the H1N1 virus. We've had a few since then. Um, and it was more commonly called the Spanish flu. Now, yeah, it's almost, one almost doesn't want to speak about these things. Do you know how many people it killed? It killed between 50 and 100 million people. That was 3 to 5% of the world population at the time. And it wasn't old people and weak people that died. It was actually young people. Because what they discovered was that the 
the antibodies in young, strong people reacted so strongly to the influenza virus that they, it actually ended up attacking themselves and they died from it. If you just look at the last hundred years, it's been particularly horrendous in the history of mankind. Just consider these three men alone. Adolf Hitler, Mao Zedong, and Joseph Stalin. Those men alone, and there have been many others like Pol Pot, um, Craig mentioned his name this week, they were responsible for the slaughter of 200 million innocent people. Give or take 10 or 20 million. Can't even add it up accurately, it was so big. And just to give you an idea, if those three men had taken one person at a time and shot one person per second, non-stop, it would have taken six years and four months to kill 200 million people. The wars that have happened in the last century. In 1931, there were floods in China that wiped out between one and four million people, depending on who is counting. In 1970, the Bola cyclone in Bangladesh, the 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami, and the 2010 Haiti earthquake, all in our history, uh, in the time that we've been alive, each of those disasters killed 300,000 people or more at once. But here's the significant thing, folks, and Tim Keller points out that these statistics are misleading because historic disasters like these, they don't actually change the suffering rate significantly in the world. Tens of thousands of people die every day in unexpected tragedies, and hundreds of thousands of, of, of others around them are crushed with shock and grief. So what were these natural disasters, accidents, sickness, cruelty, and the sinfulness of man? This world is not a safe place to live. And who's to say that you and I are immune from tragedy and suffering? You know, the, the truth is that we try to suppress the reality by saying that tragedies happen to poor people or to careless people or to ignorant people or to sinful people, sinful people or non-believers. I remember people saying, well, it's because Haiti was so involved in voodoo worship that 300,000 people ended up dying there. Or maybe we, 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 we try and justify it by saying, if we hear that it's Christians, well, we say, well, maybe they weren't disobedient to God or maybe they didn't have enough faith, or maybe they didn't listen carefully enough to God. And we try and justify it in that way. It's not going to happen to me. Somehow, it won't happen to me. Or maybe we just try and gloss over it with statistics. Six million people, or, you know, if you say it quickly enough, then we can ignore it. But behind each one of those six million people was a story like... The, the Cohen story. And folks, I know this is an awful part of, the, of this preach, but of course there is always darkness before the dawn, isn't there? The thing is that we're not untouchable. This is what Paul wrote. He said, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. See, that implies that Christians are not necessarily exempt from these things simply because they're God's children. Paul wasn't exempt. Have a look at this. He says, 
said, I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. And it would seem from this that Paul was subject to all the common dangers of the time. He ended up getting shipwrecked, do you remember that? As well as the ones that come as the result of being obedient to God. So at this point, we just got to ask myself, well, where did this leave me in my whole processing of trying to understand what God was saying to me? And it left me feeling vulnerable and afraid. I want to obey Jesus with all my heart, but I don't want to walk in suffering or to be the victim of tragedy. And I don't want to be separated from the love of God. And all of this that I could see in the world around me was leading me to believe that, that perhaps I could be separated from the love of God. I was doubting the death of God's love. And it came to a head probably about a month ago over the August holidays, you know, the public holidays. Someone gave me a book to read. It was called The Axe and the Tree. It's a book that's been written by Stephen Griffiths. Um, his father was Peter Griffiths, who was the Elam missionary. And it's the book about the Elam massacre. And I read that book, um, and it just left me in a miserable place. How could God allow his people to go through that sort of unspeakable suffering and tragedy? There were two children in the book, Tim and Rachel Evans, who were orphaned by the massacre because they were away at boarding school. They lost their parents and their young sister. And in the light of that, it was easy to doubt God's love. It's easy to wonder whether his love is powerful enough to keep a grip on the victims of tragedy. Is God still holding on to Tim and Rachel? That was what I asked myself. They're probably in their, what would they be in now? Probably in their 30s or 40s. Has the sword separated them from the love of Christ? The fact that their family got caught up in a war, as millions of people in the world today are caught up in wars so this is where we come to Psalm 22, and this is where we start to see a glimmer of hope. Psalm 22 was written by a victim of injustice. Here is a man that loves God, but tragedy has overtaken him. And so he cries out in desperation, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night but I find no rest. I wonder if you've ever felt like that. As though God has abandoned you. Well, fortunately, we know that we're not alone. There was this man hundreds of years ago who felt like he was in the same place. And why is he feeling like that? Well, in verses 6 to 8, if you just have a look there in your Bibles, um, in, sorry, in verse, yes, verses 6 to 8, we see that he is subject to public mocking and humiliation. He says that I'm scorned by everyone. I'm despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults. They shake their heads at me. And then in verses 12 to 18, he's surrounded by his enemies, and it would seem like he's being subject to some sort of torture. He says, many bulls surround me. Roaring lions, I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. 
My heart is turned to wax. It is melted within me. He's talking about extreme physical and emotional and even spiritual suffering here. But what's significant is that it's not these things that are getting to him the most. What is it that's getting to him the most? Number one, have a look at verses three to five. God is sovereign and he's delivered others. God is on his throne. You are enthroned as the Holy One of Israel. And my ancestors put their trust in you and you delivered them, but you're not doing it to me. Why? Are you, are you sovereign? Are you still sovereign? And then the other thing. God chose him, yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you. And he has been trusting God wholeheartedly. So let me just paraphrase this a little bit later. He's saying, God, I'm being publicly humiliated, and yet you are sovereign. Why are you allowing this to happen? God, I'm being publicly mocked, and yet you have prevented, you, you've prevented this from happening to others. You've saved others. Why aren't you saving me? God, I'm being unjustly tortured, and yet you chose me from birth. I didn't ask to be chosen, but since you did choose me, I put my trust in you. So why are you allowing this to happen? Why aren't you rescuing me? And now we can understand why he comes to that awful conclusion. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But, but there's a shift in verses 19 to 21 where we, we see a second cry. The first cry is a cry of desperation. The second is a cry of hope. Why? Because he believes that somehow God will be praised as a result of his suffering. And he believes that God is doing something. He believes that one day he will declare God's name to his people. And he will praise him. And this will lead to the people praising God. And it will also lead, if you look down in verse 27, to the nations praising God. And then he ends with these two amazing verses. He says, posterity, or in other words, People who haven't yet been born will serve God. Future generations will be told about God. They will proclaim His righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, God has done it. Now, when I was reflecting on the psalm in the light of, of the Elam massacres, I couldn't avoid the question, what if that cry of desperation never became a cry of hope? What then? Would God allow that to happen? Would His love be enough to keep a grip on us no matter what is going on in our lives and in our circumstances? Can anything separate us from the love of God? Let's move on to see the insight that, that God has been giving me. This psalm is, is connected irrefutably to what is called the passion of Christ. You can, you, you'll see that as we go on. Now, what is the passion of Christ? Well, the original Latin word for, for passion um, is, is the, the word from which we get the English word passion. Uh, sorry, the, word, the original Latin word for which we get the English word passion originally meant suffering. But nowadays, of course, passion means something else, doesn't it? It means heavy breathing. It means love, passion. What's the, con <laughs> What's the connection between those two things? Well, the, the connection is that wherever you have very deep love, you also sometimes have suffering. 
So if you love somebody devotedly, unconditionally, just the way Sephora and Dov love their child, then often it will be linked to great suffering as well. And so those two words go together. Let's turn now to Matthew 27, 38 to 46, where we'll see the deepest revelation of the passion, the love of Jesus. Is God's love strong enough to never let go of you? Let's read. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. And in the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Psalm 22 was written to describe the experience of some unknown person, we don't know who he was, long before the crucifixion of Christ. But at the same time as he was writing it, the spirit who was giving him the words to write knew that it was an accurate prophecy of Christ's sufferings. And we can see it there, can't we? There's the mocking, the insults. It's quite specific. People shaking their heads, the piercing of hands and feet, right down to the soldiers gambling for Jesus' clothes. And then finally, that last cry in the dark. And that's what I'd like to focus on for the rest of what I have to say. Here we find the deepest revelation of Christ's passion. Of his love for you. Now, the Bible scholars tell us that the word translated cried out in a loud voice. It's only used once in the Bible in that particular place. And so the scholars went to have a look at other documents that were written in Hebrew at the time, and they realized that this should really be translated as a scream. Jesus screamed. Now, if you were writing about the founder of your faith, would you have recorded that he screamed? It seems like he's, he's falling apart, that he's given up on God, that he's turning his back on God. You, you probably wouldn't have recorded that he screamed. And the only reason why Matthew would have recorded that is because it actually happened. But why did he scream? Was it because he was falling apart? You know, up until now, Jesus had been through all sorts of unspeakable tortures. But he hadn't raised his voice once. He'd always been composed. He's always been in control of himself. And so he's not screaming because of physical suffering. He's not saying, my head, my head, or my hands, my hands, or my feet, my feet. And nor is he screaming because of emotional pain. Do you remember when Judas betrayed him? He said, go, go and do what you have to do. Do you remember when, the, when he was in his moment of incredible need and the disciples had fallen asleep? He didn't shout at them. He just said, why? Couldn't you stay awake? 
He's been betrayed by all of his disciples, but it's not this that is calling, causing him to scream out. What is it? What's causing him to say, why, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Have a look there at verse 45. Good catch. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. Why did that happen? Well, hell, which is an eternal separation from God, is most often symbolized in the Bible by darkness, outer darkness. Yes, it's, it's symbolized by fire, but more often than not, it is symbolized by darkness. And so darkness came over the land. And that is emblematic of the fact that Jesus is going through spiritual suffering, the like of which we will never even begin to imagine. He has been forsaken by his Father. He is in hell. And the darkness over the earth is emblematic of that. No human living on earth has ever experienced what Jesus is going through. You know, even people who don't live believe in God and who are still alive on the earth, they don't know what it means to be separated from the love of God, from the presence of God. And we can relate to physical suffering, we can relate to emotional suffering of Jesus because to a limited extent we have been through those kinds of suffering. But what Jesus was going through when he screamed made all of that torture just seem like a mosquito bite. Ever since eternity passed, he'd been one with the Father. But now he's been separated from the presence and the love of God. And we all know that the more intimate, the more closer relationship, the more pain there is when it's divided. The wife, for example, who's been rejected by her husband. Tremendous pain. Can you imagine the pain of having been one with the Father since eternity passed and now being separated from him? And folks, it's almost impossible to explain But Christ was experiencing the eternal and infinite suffering in hell that all of us should have experienced. He was experiencing all of that combined into one. Now I know this is going to blow your minds, folks. But heaven and hell are, in a sense, states of being rather than linked to time. They're not linked to time. And it's either a state of being in the presence of God or being banished from the presence of God. So it wasn't a case of Jesus just gritting his teeth for three hours. No, he was experiencing that infinite suffering, pain and suffering. And it was infinitely worse than what Sipporah and Dove experienced in that moment when they discovered that their child had been taken away. And so Jesus screamed. But he wasn't falling apart. He hadn't abandoned God He hadn't given up on the plan of God. How do we know this? Because he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And these are not just words. These words come from the Bible, the scriptures that Jesus had learnt and meditated on ever since he was a child. They come, as we know, from Psalm 22. And it's staggering. Jesus is literally in the heart of hell, and yet scripture is on his mind. The psalmist felt like he had been forsaken. Jesus actually had been forsaken. But just like the psalmist, he knew that God had a purpose in the suffering. Do you remember verse 30 and 31? Posterity will serve God. Future generations will be told about God. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, God has done it. 
right from the belly of hell. Jesus is screaming in agony, but his words reflect that he still believes that God has a plan and that he's doing something. God is doing something, and through this, God will complete it. Folks, can you see why Christ is doing this? Can you see why he's screaming in the midst of eternal agony and suffering? He's doing it because he loves you. He's doing it because he's passionate about you. Here's the thing. Jesus was separated from the love of God so that you will never have to be separated from the love of God. That's the reason why he was separated. You will never be separated from the love of God. And that's why Paul can write, I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. That is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Because Christ has done it. He was separated so that we will never have to be separated. And this is the assurance that we have. And I pray that God would strengthen your hearts to be able to grasp that. That no matter what, ha- what happens to you in life, you will never be separated from the love of God. You will always be connected to God your Father. And you will be able to spend an eternity with Him in heaven. Praise be to God. Father, what can we pray in response to this? We love you so much. Um, We thank you that even as we seek to love you with all our hearts, and even as we seek to walk in the footsteps of Christ, which will mean suffering at some stage, we know that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Lord Jesus, we thank you that we will never be separated because you were. And we want to praise you and glorify you this morning. I ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.